Hello, welcome to the Eating for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Harriet Home, founder of Healthy Eating Doctor, registered nutritionist and doctor. I studied medicine at Cambridge University, worked in the NHS for over a decade, have a PhD in genetics, lecture on nutrition and was commissioned to write a novel degree combining culinary skills, nutrition and health. I'm on a mission to break down nutrition myths and share science-backed nutrition to help empower you. I'll share some interviews, theories and practical tips focused around nutrition and health. Stay tuned to find out more. To celebrate World Kidney Day, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Tom Oates, a consultant nephrologist and general physician at the Royal London Hospital, to talk about salt and blood pressure. Tom sees patients with a wide range of kidney problems and general medical illnesses and specialises in the care of people with nephrotic syndrome and those with kidney failure treated by haemodialysis and kidney transplantation. He's interested in technology and innovation in medicine, delivering the East London Virtual Chronic Kidney Disease Service and researching the use of machine learning in medicine. So I'm really delighted to have Tom Oates. He's a doctor and nephrologist who works at the Royal London. And um, we know each other actually from school. So we go a, a long way back, but haven't seen each other for a long time. So I want to ask, first of all, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, Tom. Well, hi, Harriet. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, I'm a um, consultant nephrologist and physician at the Royal London, which is a very large hospital in the east end of London. We serve... Um, one of the most deprived constituencies in Western Europe. Um, and I see predominantly patients with kidney disease um, and patients whose kidneys have failed. So who are having dialysis treatment or have a kidney transplant. Um, and I also do what's called general medicine, where I see patients who come through the front door of the hospital and need admitting to hospital with things like pneumonia, small heart attacks, other infections. And obviously the main other infection recently has been COVID-19 so I've seen a lot of that recently. Yeah so we might we might touch on that at the end but I think first of all we're going to talk about um, what the role of the kidney is and then um, why it's really important how salt affects it how it affects your blood pressure and and that the global burden of disease 2010 study identified blood pressure as the number one risk factor for um, for death and disability worldwide so I think it's a really important topic and I think the, the crux of it is really what does the kidney do and why does it matter? So um, over to you to explain that then, please, Tom. So, I mean, I guess what everybody knows about their kidneys probably is that they make their urine. Um, and there's a famous old quote amongst kidney doctors that um, saying your kidneys make your make urine is a bit like saying that factories only make pollution um, because what kidneys actually do is they regulate the internal environment of your body Um so they regulate how much water your body holds on to, how much of it is passed out as urine. Um, and they regulate a lot of the salts in the blood. So sodium, which is common salt or table salt, most of that. Potassium is another important one. And then along with that goes um, how acid your blood is um, or how alkali. Um, and, and then what I, I think maybe people have a fair idea of those things, maybe not the exact salts, but... What maybe people don't really realise is the kidney is also an endocrine organ, so it also makes hormones. Um, it's particularly involved with looking after your bones and things to do with vitamin D and calcium, um, and also in making your red blood cells. So um, 
everyone's heard of EPO these days because of its its role as a of a um, a drug of abuse in sports. But but your kid uh, EPO in your own body is made by your kidneys. Um, so so it has a lot of roles. Um, it doesn't just make your year. And just to clarify then that EPO stimulates red blood cell production, which is why it's a drug of abuse in sport, because obviously the more red blood cells you have, the more you can transport oxygen, so the greater your exercise tolerance. Um, but obviously, if you're not uh, an elite athlete, it's still really important because we still all need red blood cells to transport oxygen around. So um, and you can it's synthetic now as well, I think, isn't it? You can it's synthetic EPO that you can that's injected if you if you're deficient yeah. it or you have kidney issues let's talk about salt then so i know that a normal most people probably know that a normal blood pressure consists of two bits so you've got your diastolic and your systolic um and so it, it comes as two numbers so sort of around 180 120 over 80 is your sort of normal blood pressure um which most people are, are, are aiming for and if you've got a blood pressure that's even just slightly raised then it increases your risk of a heart attack um so if you could just decrease it then conversely it reduces your your risk of heart attack and reduces dying so how can you do that with salt and the kidney then why does salt matter and and how does it affect your blood pressure so i mean salt is if you're a very boring nephrologist like me salt is extremely interesting and i think one of the reasons is it goes all the way back to human evolution so humans as we are evolved um, in the east african rift valley which is one of the most salt poor environments on the planet so that's why we um, both have the ability to crave salt in our diet um, and also why we have why we perhaps suffer if we have too much salt in our diet and as you say salt reduction is is good for um trying to because there is there does seem to be a, a relationship between salt and your blood pressure so if you eat more salt um, you're more likely to have a higher blood pressure and you're more likely to have heart disease as a result but similarly if you cut out salt to the extent that you have almost no salt in your diet then there's probably also um, uh, consequences on your health as a result of that as well so it's quite important to to hit the sweet spot as as people might say but quite where that sweet spot is, is, is something that people are constantly looking into. I think what we probably all know is that that sweet spot is nowhere near what the recommended daily allowance of salt is um, at the moment. So uh, the recommended daily allowance is six, six grams, which is probably what you can fit in a teaspoon, um, of which 2.3 grams of that or the recommended daily allowance of sodium, which of course is half of salt, um, is 2.3 grams. Unless you make your own bread um, and you are vegetarian, it's almost impossible to eat six grams or less of salt in a day. Um, so, which is not to say that we're, our blood pressure and cardiovascular system will all be suffering because we eat too much salt. But I think if you think of ways to sort of increase the general health of your diet you'll almost certainly be reducing the amount of salt that you're eating absolutely and so that's really sort of the j-shaped curve as you you talk about it that people may well have heard about it with alcohol as well that people some some people believe that you need a little bit of something uh, and that's the, the start of the j and then there's a sort of sweet spot at the bottom where and then as you increase your salt or as you increase your alcohol then it causes you know, health issues. But I think most people probably just think, oh, you know, I need to cut salt out of my diet completely. 
And that's probably true, isn't it? Because as you say, there's probably so much hidden salt in processed food or bread and things that even if you cut out all additional salt, you're still having a lot of salt through your diet. And so you're still well into that, probably, you know, the, the bottom bit of your J-shaped curve where, you, you know, you're in your sweet spot. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Definitely. And and I think, um, yeah, to make the point again, there's so much salt in processed food in things like, you know, pesto-y type sauces or sauces that you would cook meat in you know like a bolognese sauce you know the only reason you're adding salt at the table is for taste there's so much salt in foods as they are that, that you really shouldn't be adding additional salt at, at the table and so how does the salt actually lead to our higher blood pressure what actually happens then well so i mean salt and water so sodium and water kind of they're a bit like Eric and Ernie from Sesame Street, or I can't think of a slightly more up-to-date topical reference, um, in that Pepper and George, I don't know, in that they always go around together. So the more salt you have in your body, the more water your body will retain. Um, and kind of as a result, the more water, if you have more water in your blood vessels, your blood pressure is likely to go up. Um, there are additional, much more complicated um, kind of hormonal mechanisms um, involved in uh, your body's um, response to salt intake um, to the, that affects your blood pressure, um, which I wouldn't go into off the top of my head. Um, but but that's kind of the most basic way to think about it. Okay, and that's great. Thank you. And I mean, so I know m- m- what I think about this, but it'd be useful to hear if you think exactly the same, that all of these sort of posh salts, the gourmet salt, the Himalayan, the kosher, the sea salt, they're all just salts and they might have, you know, slightly different micronutrients, but they're all just sodium chloride at the end of the day. And they're all going to have pretty similar uh, effects on your blood pressure. It still is salt. You should still try and avoid it. Even if it's dressed up in a fancy packet and it looks pink and it looks more exciting, it's still going to have the same effect. 100% yeah it's like bottled water right it's just water at the end of the day it might have as you say it might have micro you know extremely small differences in things like magnesium or something Mm -hmm. within it but it's it's just salt at the end of the day and I think it's important just in case anyone sees the title of this and tunes in who has kidney disease it's important to say that salt substitutes so things like low salt um they tend to replace the sodium in the salt, so the sodium in the sodium chloride for potassium. Um, so, and that can be quite dangerous if you have advanced um, chronic kidney disease. So, so I certainly, as a kidney doctor, would never recommend you use a salt substitute either. Um, but you can spend as much money as you like on salt. Is there any truth that if you increase your potassium, that that could potentially offset the impact then of, of sodium intake? You know, if you eat sort of potassium rich food, not sort of not the salt substitutes that are much higher in potassium, but just sort of, you know, eat foods that's naturally higher in potassium. Can that offset the, the, the harmful effects of sodium? I, I think certainly the, the um, increasing dietary potassium in patients who um, or in people, <laughs> in people, but also in patients who are able to do that um, without detrimental effects on their health. Increasing dietary potassium really does seem to be an active area of research, and all the research does seem to point to the health benefits of that. I think a lot of that is because foods that are rich in potassium tend to be 
fruit and, fruit and vegetables and things yeah yeah absolutely yeah. so i'll just so foods that are rich in potassium are things like bananas fish potatoes avocados citrus spinach beans broccoli peas and apricots so i think if you're having a diet high in those you're also having a diet that's high in fiber you know um antioxidants you know vitamins minerals and all the rest of it as well aren't you so it might i guess i wonder whether it's just a potassium or whether it's sort of a wider whole food effect of having a healthier diet in general yeah I think, and there is certainly research showing that high potassium diets do seem to be associated with lower blood pressures um coming right. back to that thanks so i don't know if you've heard of beetroot powder but it seems to be increasingly trendy um, it's a natural uh, vasodilator with um, nitric acid in it. So it naturally vasodilates. I was just wondering if that's uh, anything that people can ever ask you about if, if they've got high blood pressure or, or has uh, not I've, reached I've yet. never not reached me yet. No, not reached East London, clearly. Um, we're not quite hipster enough in the East End, I don't think. But um, Or my patients aren't, obviously. But yeah, no, I've not heard of that not when you uh, have patients with high blood pressure what do sort of things do you say in clinic what is it mainly I mean, dietary changes or is it more um you know medicines what what sort of what do you recommend so obviously by the time they get to me um they're normally on quite a lot of medicines already um but what of course is very interesting is often nobody's had to talk to them about more more um, non-pharmacal or non-medicine type things so um keeping it maintaining a healthy weight maintaining a healthy level of exercise obviously i'm not talking about bench pressing 150 kilos or running marathons i'm just saying enough to increase your work of uh, your rate of breathing perhaps three times a week which most people can achieve by walking backwards and forwards to the newspaper shop or um, something like that decreasing alcohol so certainly um if you want to maintain your best health, I don't think anyone should be drinking over two units a day anymore. Diet is very important. The easiest one for me to recommend as a, as a doctor with a finite amount of time for each consultation is the DASH, D-A-S-H diet, which um, is kind of overseen by, I think it's the National Institute of Di Diabetes, Digestive and Kidney Disease in the US, mm. um, and is easily searchable on the internet and it and is again backed by an evidence base of being good for your blood pressure i think i've got either an instagram post or a blog post on that but i'll certainly link to um to that in the show notes so that you can find that easily and i think um, it's very similar to a mediterranean diet isn't it as well that yes all, exactly you know, very similar yeah. they're very the sort of main difference i think is that dash um is sort of lower fat um, whereas you can have, you know, full fat in the Mediterranean diet, but um, certainly very similar, very similar principles of whole grains, fruit and vegetables, low salt, you know, small amounts of meat and dairy and, and low alcohol. And as you say, I think there's sort of more and more evidence, isn't there, that um, the alcohol in general really is just sort of negative health impact as opposed to having any real beneficial health impact at all. So um, there's sort of less and less thinking of that J-shaped curve that it probably really just... Um, is more harmful than, than good but obviously people don't drink alcohol because it's good for your health you drink alcohol because <laughs> your mental health so uh so yes um anyway so that's that's great so what kind of other other things do you see in clinic then so you see people with high blood pressure um what else do you sort of see um so i see patients with quite rare forms of kidney disease um which is called which come under the kind of heading of nephrotic syndrome um which is when their kidneys are 
basically unable to retain protein. So they leak huge amounts of protein into, into their urine. And because the protein is lost from their bodies, their bodies become in, incredibly waterlogged. So they're often carrying around like 20 kilos of extra water in their body. They swell up a lot. Um, and we have to treat those patients with quite strong drugs, so immunosuppressive drugs. Um, so I, I see a lot of patients with that. Um, I also, um, another specialist interest of mine is patients with inherited kidney disease, so very rare um, genetic diseases. Um, and then I see patients who have had kidney transplants. So I look after kind of their general health after a kidney transplant. Um, and I see patients who, unfortunately, whose kidneys have failed, who are on hemodialysis treatment, which is basically just a big expensive washing machine that does your, does the job of your kidneys when they've failed. Um, so that's most of my job. Thank you. And I to sort of, I guess it's a nice link in from nephrotic syndrome and thinking about how important the kidneys are in water balance um, that um, you can tell us sort of why, why water is so important, why we need to keep well hydrated and then um, sort of what you mean by dehydration or what we mean by dehydration. Well, so, I mean, we are all at least, well, at, we are all at any one time approximately 70% water. So um, water is very important to us. But because it's so important to us, a lot of the processes of our body are designed to regulate the amount of water within us. Um, so although you may think you just feel thirsty, that's million years of evolution or millions of years of evolution telling you that you need to regulate the amount of water in your body. Um, and as a result of that, most most nephrology or most kidney doctors would, or most people with a grounding in human physiology would tell you that all you need to do is drink to thirst. I mean, you know, you, you, you don't see anyone carrying a bag on the tube these days whose bag isn't doesn't feature a big bottle of water or something but um but you know if you drink to thirst you'll probably be okay as a as a healthy person um the famous seven glasses of water today uh, seven glasses of water a day that we all think we should be drinking um was first appeared in a 1945 report from the US Food and Nutrition Board um and was based on absolutely no scientific evidence at all it was just felt to be a good amount and has kind of um, propagated down the generations since. And it probably is a good amount, but but equally, as I say, it, it probably only represents how much you drink um, if you were thirsty. And it's worth noting that when they said that in 1945, they also said that probably most of that will be from your food, which is a bit that nobody ever talks about anymore. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you're a healthy person, then then the amount of water in your body is, is pretty much looked after by your healthy body. Uh, it's not going to it's you can probably explain it better than i can if you have access to a, to liquid to drink um that is kind of normal liquid you know like water or tea or coffee or whatever if you have access to li liquid to drink and you're able to drink for yourself then if you drink to your thirst you'll be fine and as you say there are no health benefits that i'm aware of of you know hyper hydrating yourself or drinking more certainly not the one about flushing toxins out and it just means you'll spend more time on the toilet exactly so so by all you know by all means if if um if you want your urine to run in completely clear then drink more water than you feel thirsty but again there are no health benefits to that people have in fact studied you know your kidney function 
based on blood tests that we do and look at and try to match it to the colour of your urine. And again, there's no real um, easily reproducible association between the two. Well, that's that's something's really interesting because so many people obsess about the colour of their urine yeah. and, you know, oh, I need to drink more. And, and actually, that's really interesting to know that there's there's no association there. Then. And also, I think that it's not really talked about. I think it's really hard to do if you're a normal, healthy person, but you can get water intoxication. It is possible to drink too much if you're, you know, it's normally more sort of people with um, other issues, isn't it? Sort of maybe kidney disease or mental health issues that can, you know, can have water intoxication, but it, it certainly, it is there. It does happen occasionally. Absolutely. So if you have significant or advanced chronic kidney disease, you can definitely drink too much because your kidneys cannot eliminate the water. Um, so when I see my patients who are on hemodialysis, I spend lots of time talking about ways that they might be able to decrease the amount of fluid that they drink. Um, so that is very important. Um, and, and again, if you're listening as a patient, you know, you, you should speak to your own doctor or, or, or medical team about how much water is right for you. Um, and yes, again, um, some patients with mental health issues will drink too much water. We don't really have a culture in the UK, or we certainly didn't when I, when you and I were at university, of, of this idea of um, making people drink water as a kind of initiation ritual. But we've, we, you do see incredible um, people become incredibly unwell as a result of that. And also, mm. um, again, things like taking some recreational drugs as well may result in people drinking too much water as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like sometimes they hit the news, don't they, of you know teenagers having ecstasy and then drinking too much. Those sort of, I guess, more psychological drive to drink too much, um, even if you have got healthy kidneys. So, um, so certainly something I think to be mindful of that there are lots of these nutrition myths and sort of myths in general. You know, so about the color of your urine, or you know, you, the more you drink, the healthier you are. But that's not really necessarily the case. So I know that what, as a non-medical person, you might think of dehydration and everyone's sort of worried that they're dehydrated and in the summer I'm dehydrated. I don't want to get dehydrated. But as a kidney doctor, what's what's your take on what do you mean by dehydration? Well, so uh, as a kidney doctor, dehydration means very specifically um, loss of water alone. And if you think about when we're eliminating water, we're mostly eliminating water as well as other waste products um, and salts. And so you're not just eliminating pure water, you know, like it comes out of a tap almost. Um, so we would say people who are people who have lost a lot of fluid, perhaps because they've, you know, run an ultramarathon or something, we would call those hypovolemic. So meaning that they're un, they have less volume circulating in their bodies than than we'd um, we'd like. I get slightly pedantic about this. A, a colleague of mine who works in Texas um, once famously was driving to work, listening them, to them talk on the radio after, on a Monday after a Dallas Cowboys American football game on the Sunday, and they kept talking about some guy being dehydrated. And he actually rang up the radio station and said, no, they're not dehydrated, they're hypovolemic. But... Um, I've never felt the need to do that yet, yet. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I know that's certainly a big bugbear for, for kidney doctors. I think it's quite interesting to know really that, and I, I, probably most people don't realise that you're not losing salt. If you are doing in more endurance sport, that you do need to replace that salt as well. And that's one of the times where you know, replacing salt is important because you're losing that. You're losing pepper and George, you're losing water or, you know, Eddie and Ernie. You're losing water and salt together, not just, just one. Exactly, yeah. Is there anything else about kidneys that you'd love to share with us that you think would be really, really great to talk about? Well, if we're talking about nutrition, I guess protein is often something that um, people talk about. Um, so, and, uh, and certainly specifically for kidneys, if if you have just been given a diagnosis of kidney disease in any form and you think, oh, I'll have a search on the internet, one of the things that comes up about things you can do um, is always protein and it, and it's slightly controversial um, so for many many years people with kidney disease were told to really reduce their protein intake um, and one of the reasons for that is that obviously if you intake protein your body breaks it down into smaller molecules and the waste that particularly comes from protein is 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 eliminated from the body by your kidneys um, so kind of if you eat more protein it puts slightly more stress on the kidneys um so if you are if you do have a diagnosis of kidney disease you might need to eat um smaller portions of of protein particularly if you eat meat and dairy um as your main protein sources of protein intake um and if you have significant chronic kidney disease that is not landing you on dialysis um you should probably be re trying to reduce your intake to um, 0 0.55 grams per kilo of body weight per day which may be a bit specific for a podcast like this but um, and then there's also a, a real vogue for um, or an interest in going for very very low protein diets with supplementation with um, keto acid or amino acid analogs um, but that is not my specialist area but uh, but I, I think um as I say, if you if you're searching around on the internet for dietary advice around protein, around um, kidney disease, sorry, you will find a lot about protein, um, so it's worth thinking about. And I think also, sort of thinking of protein, people generally there's sort of a big vogue now to cut out carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are the devil, you know, they're really bad for you, and replace it with protein, which is not you know the right answer i don't think we need to be having more of a balanced diet some pro you know you need protein and whole grains are important for gut health fiber um and the you know their nutrient content but if you take decide to take protein powder as well that's just any excess protein is just converted to fat and you're first of all you're putting an extra strain i'm guessing on your kidneys because you're either excreting those amino acids those small building blocks of protein if you don't need them or you're um or you're storing them as fat and so the more protein you eat if you eat to excess it doesn't matter that it's protein it will still be stored as fat and i think that's a really key factor that most people really do not need protein powder you just need to eat protein in your diet to, to a normal amount so another one is the acid and alkali diet I'm talking about sort of ph balance and things so Lots of people seem to think that uh, acid and alkali diet, if you eat acid foods, you're going to be much healthier than if you eat uh, alkali. Fundamentally, to me, from medical school and being a doctor, you know, this is, comes down to sort of basic homeostasis. 
that unholiness stasis means that you're always trying to get back to a set point. If your body goes too high to something, there'll be a mechanism to bring it down. If it goes low, there'll be a mechanism to bring it up so that your pH is so tightly controlled that I can't see how any food would ever be altering your blood pH. The only thing it would ever alter is your urine pH. And so that's why, um, you know, you can have kidney stones potentially if you have um, if you eat a lot of certain types of food or you're just presumably, you know, you're genetically prone to them. Um, so have you got any thoughts on that as well? Tom? Well, if you thought um, we could get pedantic about hypovolemia and dehydration, I can get pedantic and angry about pH. Um, you know, I spend huge amounts of my time looking at test results about the degree of acid in the blood of patients and the only patients in whom you see significant changes in the acid or alkali of the blood are often critically unwell um, mm. and so anybody who's telling you that some amount of different acid or alkali in your diet is going to change the acid or alkali in your blood and therefore make you healthier or less healthy um, is selling you something on the back of a lie. Yeah, absolutely. We both very much agreed with that. Um, so I know that as well as, as talking about kidney disease, as you said, as you alluded at the beginning, that you're also a general medical doctor. So you see um, lots of, of, you see anyone that comes through the front door that's referred by A&E with a medical problem, as well as also being that specialist kidney doctor. So um, we're recording this just after the third wave of, of COVID. And I know that um, certainly the Royal London was hit pretty hard. You've got a very deprived area, as you've sort of said, and COVID certainly seems to be you know, a disease that hits people that are um, the more deprived socioeconomic group um, harder than, than those that are, are better off and able to shield or able to you know, stay at home and not the you know, key worker jobs and things. Um, and are less likely to be overweight with diabetes and and uh, and those things as well. So it must have been really tough being in that you know front line as as I sort of it said, seeing all those patients. Because not only I guess are you not seeing the ones people talked about you know ITU being overwhelmed. I'm sure all the, the wards as well were completely overwhelmed with with patients that never quite made it to ITU or just came out of ITU or waiting to go into ITU. So how do you? I mean, how do you sort of cope with that as a as a consultant that you know this is sort of a once in a lifetime thing that certainly as I when I was a doctor we never had anything like that I remember um, back we were preparing for swine flu but swine flu never never hit so we were you know really lucky um, but how do you sort of how do you build resilience into into getting up every day and going and and, and, and being totally overwhelmed at work and, and coping with that I mean I think I think one of the, as you to pick up on something you just said, Harriet, I think it was once. This was once in a lifetime, and and actually, um, the wave just gone. So the Christmas 2020 2021 wave, that was once in a lifetime compared to the first wave. Actually, for us in East London, um, I, and I think you know the first thing to say is the um, the NHS as a whole. I can't speak for the NHS as a whole. I only work in London, but. Certainly what I've seen is the response of the NHS to, to COVID has been incredible at every step of the way. Um, and I think, you know, and a lot of that is because this has been so unprecedented. I think for a lot of us um, dealing with COVID, 
one of the ways that we could we could deal with it is because actually it wasn't personal to us. You just had to watch the news to see this was not happening all over London or all over England or all over Europe. It was happening all over the world. Um, and therefore, you know, this wasn't something that you had to think, oh, what's wrong in your practice or your hospital or how can you improve with that? You just had to think, okay, how can we deal with what's coming in through our front door with COVID? So, and again, you know, this wasn't me sitting down doing my specialist clinic, wondering about my very tricky patients in that, thinking, could I do them, have treated them better? Or this was the whole of my hospital, the whole of all hospitals pulled together to work together with this. And I think you really felt like you were part of something. So regardless of the fact that it was a exhausting physically and mentally, I've been a hospital doctor so long, I, t- I can't really remember what people who've never been to hospital think I do. Um, but uh, you don't see death all the time. The patients in the hospital aren't dying all the time. Whereas in this wave of COVID, lots and lots of patients were dying in hospital. And that is the truth of the matter. Um, and so we, we've, all, we've all had to find ways to deal with that. That must be you know, a really difficult thing to deal with. But certainly... Um, when I was doing paediatric oncology, obviously we had, you know, a subset of very sick patients mm. and, you know, paediatric oncology, kids die more in that than they do in sort of general paediatrics. But certainly that, you know, I remember almost them on a, on a name by name basis because there were so few of them that died. So certainly having mm. to deal with that must have been really difficult and really, you know, unusual for you. Um, is it, How did you find that you coped with it? Again, I think I think you you have to think that this is not you know this is not a, a that th- this is something that's hitting the whole world and and you just have to think I'm part of the attempt to lessen the lessen the disaster that is COVID and I think mm-hmm. um, in this wave just gone one thing we did have is we did have a we'd had really excellent research predominantly from something called the recovery trial, which was a very large clinical trial of multiple different drugs, which was coordinated in the UK in Oxford, which had shown us what drugs worked for patients. Um, And so we knew that we could use drugs that we knew were going to help patients, which we didn't know back in spring 2020. We'd also, um, both at my hospital and worldwide, we knew which patients were not going to survive COVID and therefore we knew that maybe those patients were better off being managed in a way that didn't draw out their suffering it increased you know it meant that they were comfortable Mm. at the end of their lives so we did approach this wave with you know armed with more information and more tools as it were and I think that was a comfort to a lot of people um but but yeah, I mean it's we the Royal London we have a huge intensive care anyway, and at one point it was three times the size of what it was. So everyone remembers the Nightingale from the first wave. The Royal London Hospital was London's Nightingale in the third wave, and you know I don't say that just because I work there. I say that because it's a fact. Um, mm. So you know it, 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 we'll never see it anything again, hopefully. No, absolutely, hopefully not. No, well, thank you very much. I think it's been um, really fascinating talking to you and um, thank you. Thanks very much, Harriet.
I really hope you enjoyed listening and I'd love if you'd give me a five star review and subscribe so that other people can find me too. I'm also at Healthy Eating Doctor on Instagram and I have lots more nutrition education information on both my video courses and on my website healthyeatingdoctor.com.